The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. We want to care, we need to care. We need to see care as an ingredient of all our relationships. We have to like really emphasize relationship building and connection over this capitalist idea of efficiency. Even while knowing power can always enter into relationships, particularly if we have the market or institutions or just even within the family. You're there to make sure somebody's fed, but you're not there to like talk to them. In the early 1600s, the poet, soldier and one-time dean of St. Paul's Cathedral named John Donne sat down to write the words, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. As he wrote this, he was recovering from a bout of severe sickness, most likely typhoid, and he'd been convinced that he was going to die. A few hundred years later, Tennessee Williams wrote A Streetcar Named Desire, where a stricken southern belle named Blanche Dubois is forced to throw herself on the mercy of her poorer sister and her husband. At the end of the play, a nearly catatonic Blanche is ushered off by doctors. She tells them, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. Now, why should that famous last sentiment always appear to us as tragedy? Certainly the PR execs of capitalism expect us, demand us, to be independent above everything else, self-reliant, go-getting, individuals capable of providing for our own needs without troubling other people. You wouldn't want to be a scrounger, you wouldn't want to be a drain on the system, you wouldn't want to need other people so terrifyingly urgently. But the reality of human existence, and indeed the reality of our economy, is far messier, far more interconnected, far more interdependent than that story will admit. So, what if we embraced that fact? What if we started to build a politics of care founded on the assumption that always and everywhere, people need people? A politics where illness, disability, parenthood, ageing and mutual vulnerability were not seen as exceptions to be shoved to the margins of society. Lynn Segal and Laurie Erickson have spent decades writing about what this future might look like and organising to make it happen. Laurie Erickson is the Ethel Louise Armstrong Postdoctoral Fellow at Ryerson School of Disability Studies. She's the creator of Want, an internationally award-winning queer crip porn film, She's also a community organiser and she's worked with 81 Reasons, Prisoner Justice Action Coalition, Queers Crash the Beat and was a founding member of DAM 2025 and Accessible. Lynn Segal is Anniversary Professor of Psychology and Gender Studies in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck College. Her books include Is the Future Female? Troubled Thoughts on Contemporary Feminism, Slow Motion, Changing Masculinities, Changing Men and Straight Sex, Rethinking the Politics of Pleasure. Her latest title, Lean on Me, A Politics of Radical Care, was published in November by Verso Books. We talked about queer care, pandemic politics, and looking beyond the welfare state. Lynn, Laurie, so good to have you with us. Welcome to the Verso podcast. Hello, Eleanor. Hello, Laurie. It's very good to be here. Hi, Eleanor and Lynn. Nice to be here as well. Right. So, so much to talk about because, you know, when one starts delving into this thing we call care or the politics of care more broadly, the more all-encompassing, the more world-altering it seems. So we've got a lot to get into. So let's start with the fact that we have this idea of ourselves or sometimes you know culturally speaking we have this idea of ourselves as sort of in as a default independent coherent self-continent adult subjects that's what personhood is supposed to look like in many senses but of course without the input of things like care and you know nutrients and shelter and that kind of thing obviously we um our biological beings collapse very very easily and quickly so where did we get this i guess myth of what it is to be a person i'm wondering if you could come in on this lynn yes well certainly the um calamities of care which surround us everywhere you know from cradle to grave 
when once we were promised the opposite. As you say, I think begin very much from the devaluation of care itself and the refusal to acknowledge our lifelong dependency and our inevitable interdependencies. Now, where does it come from? Well, actually, it's got everything to do with gender dynamics, with the gendering of care, that care is something that women do and that women also were always seen as themselves dependent. So we we both did all the caring, usually, and were seen as dependent. So if you go back to Locke or, you know, all these um, Western philosophical thinkers, Kant, you know, the self-made man is the totally autonomous, independent man, and uh, he doesn't need anyone to look after him. So dependency, you know, in, in in Western philosophical thought, was systematically devalued and and what helped it be devalued was its gendering, that it was women who were expected to do the caring, but women who then themselves were seen as dependent. So it was this vicious circle that all added up to a sidelining of care as anything we really needed to worry about, anything important. Yeah, and I would just add that that like part of where those Western ideologies and theories come from is the broader sort of capitalist colonial project that requires thinking about bodies and thinking about people within these hierarchical binaries, right? So like Lynn was saying, within women and the ways that women are seen as like dependent, but also as like the ultimate carers. Part of that is because colonization requires this idea of an other, right, in order to have access to land and reimagine land as property and also indigenous peoples as, um, you know, like other to be marked for removal and so it's really interesting if you look at like some of the first sort of targets of colonization within North America were really focused on indigenous family systems and gender systems that were outside of a patriarchal uh, conception of family and uh, gender, right? Um, So really trying to install that, uh, you know, woman as subordinate carer, as opposed to looking at the broader sort of realities of people's lives. (laughs) Could I just add, I think that's right, Laurie, but it, it, it very much is all of a piece in the colonial world, those being colonized and exploited were always seen as childlike and dependent on the West, weren't they, on the one hand, and also, like women generally, forced to do most of the caring. And as we'll see as we go on, we've actually seen, you know, an amplification of this process with, you know, third world women being so much um, responsible for our caring needs for many reasons, which I'm sure we'll be going into. Yeah, absolutely. So, Laurie, when we start expanding what we think about, when we think about the politics of care, we sometimes come to a a greater understanding of, uh, you know, what it means to be not just a person with like a specific set of like biological necessities, but a person in community and as a kind of political actor as well. So I'm I'm wondering uh, how you think we should start rethinking perhaps what kind of tasks, what kind of work we might want to include when we talk about care? Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting. Part of what I think needs to happen is this idea that, you know, and obviously disabled folks have certain needs that are seen as different than other folks' needs, but a lot of the ways that we kind of distinguish, like, disability care from just, like, care in general and the kinds of care that we all require is connected to the fact that the whole world is 
built to enable certain body mind experiences and body mind needs right like you know an example is like on the bus right like people when i'm i'm a wheelchair user and when i go to get on a bus people are always like oh it's so nice that there's a ramp for you and i'm like well it's nice that there's a step and doors and seats for you (laughs) like it's like this way that certain people's bodily needs are accommodated and therefore they disappear as needs right and then disabled folks and anybody who sort of falls outside of the terms of normativity that mark what we accommodate right then become seen as having extra needs or you know quote-unquote special needs right Mm -hmm. and I think that's like a really big piece of it is we need to start like sort of recognizing all of the the ways that our world is built to enable certain ways of living and being in, in the world. And that default is to perpetuate this systems of inequality. And so I think that once we can start to recognize that all bodies have needs (laughs) and all bodies are deserving of care, (laughs) right? Like we're all deserving of care. I think that will go a long way towards shifting up this devaluation of care, like Lynn was saying earlier, right? Like the ways that like care is so devalued, but part of that's because of the ways that it's been tied to challenging this idea of like the independent you know autonomous solitary figure which doesn't actually exist (laughs) i'd quite like to add something to that because in my book um lean on me and also in our earlier care manifesto we do make the point that disability activists have been so crucial in helping us to rethink the connection between autonomy and dependence and that they're best seen, as Laurie says, as two sides of the same coin. I mean, what disability activists began arguing from the 1970s and 80s was that it was not so much that they were disabled personally, it wasn't at their attribute, but they were disabled by society and society ought to enable them to be able to live autonomously and independently and full lives were it to provide the provision for them. And as Laurie says, it's not as though we aren't all dependent on our social infrastructures. It's just that we need social infrastructures that enable everyone to engage. I mean, I I also think there's some slight problem with the emphasis on independence and autonomy, but perhaps we can get to that separately, because I do think it's important to stress that we are all vulnerable (laughs) and uh, there are ways in which that disability rhetoric was abused and misused in Britain around independent living and so how can we get more productivity and work out of uh, independent people and we got the um, terrible assessments for work and so on that still go on to this day. So, you know, there can be a downside to it but I think the uh, notion of social disability, being disabled by society, was very important in making, enabling us to rethink how we actually cater for everyone in society. Under the austerity regimens, the huge and horrendous cuts to disability welfare payments were kind of euphemistically termed personal independence payments, or they were kind of rebranded as personal independence payments. And what did we actually see? Well, we saw a lot of disabled people dying. Like that was what that system enabled. Independence is, let's say, a very, very interesting way of putting that, to say the least. So let's talk about these frameworks of kind of vulnerability fragility, precarity in relation to this kind of uh, notion of care in general and and particularly in relation to care for disabled people because we've picked up on ideas that, you know, it is a a bit of a sort of tangled not wanting to make sure that people have autonomy and dignity and independence as kind of full beings and as kind of 
political beings in and of themselves, but balancing that by recognising our kind of interdependence. I am uh, struck, Lynn, by how you cite the Tennessee Williams plays famous A Streetcar Named Desire, its famous last line, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers, which is supposed to be this kind of abject, tragic moment. And I think, well... Yeah, that's kind of everyone. That's kind of the nature of being a person a lot of the time. Larie, would you like to come in on this? Yeah, I also really enjoyed that reference and the sort of reframing of that reference. I am somebody who grew up in Virginia, so I am a a Southern lady. (laughs) Now we live in Canada, though. And I've often stated that, like, that, oh, I rely on the kindness of strangers because, like, as I'm moving through an ableist world that wasn't designed to accommodate me and wasn't designed with my particular body mind in mind, I often have to ask people to, like, push buttons or open doors or do whatever. And I have these, like, really beautiful moments a lot of times with strangers because I get to, you know, have like a 30 second conversation with somebody or five minute conversation with somebody about how their day is going or whatever. And so I think that that ties into this like reframing of vulnerability as like a negative thing as opposed to like this beautiful connective thing. And I think that a lot of the times why we think about vulnerability as such a negative thing is because it's often exploited and causes a lot of direct harm in people's lives, right? Because they're seen as vulnerable or they are made vulnerable by the the state or powers that be. And so I think that's one thing is that we really need to challenge this idea that vulnerability is like holding that double double edged sword like you were saying and also something that really evolved from organizing my care the way i do which is through a collective of people from the various communities that i'm a part of so like disability community and queer community and feminist community and just like radical community in general folks volunteer and come and help me get out of bed and go to the washroom and organize my sparkly things and (laughs) feed my cat and all of, you know, the activities of daily living. And at first I was really sort of thinking about how, you know, my body as like the body that's being lifted and the body that's more often than not in various stages of clothed and unclothed as like the vulnerable body. But it really occurred to me that partly because of the context of collective care, which is what I'm doing, it's very different than in the institutional care setting where it's about connection and it's about community building as much as it is about, you know, me using the washroom or making dinner and I really started noticing how out the folks who are coming to my place and helping me get onto the toilet were about their bodies and their bodily needs right like people would be like oh sorry I'm sweaty I just biked up the hill and it really started making me think about how care is this like beautiful opportunity for us to recognize like our both our inherent vulnerability and come together and talk about what both of our bodies need in that moment to be able to enact care in a sort of flowing back and forth kind of way rather than, oh, I'm the person who's receiving care in this moment, right? Like we're both engaging in care (laughs) and in a care exchange, right? Could I add something there? Please. Because, you know, what's been happening nowadays with the outsourcing of care and the financialization of care homes and so on is precisely that not only are carers exploited, but they really can't do 
the crucial work of caring. They are not given the time and space to build up that caring interaction. And, you know, so many of them report that the worst thing about their job is that they really can't do it properly. Their time is clipped. They're not able to give the care that's needed and build up that relationship. So, you know, one thing that I'm sure we'll address at some point is what we're to do about this outsourcing and financialization of care that we've got under, um, you know, contemporary neoliberal capitalism. And let's stay with you, Lynn, because I'm kind of intrigued, I'm sure many uh, listeners would be, about your experience with kind of models of, of caring that are outside of the traditional family unit of, you know, a mother, a father, both definitely, definitionally straight and cis, implicitly often also white, you know, 2.4 kids, a Land Rover and a Golden Retriever and all that other good stuff, right? And uh, many feminist theorists and other theorists have, have pointed out how that kind of model is is a way of uh, privatising care that can be something that doesn't actually meet care needs in a more dispersed, diverse, societal way. It can actually sort of absorb more care resources and privatise things into sort of quite a, a lonely, cloistered setting to both give and receive care. Yes. Well, again, one thing that um, I've argued for in various things in feminists in general, have tended to argue for is, um, first of all, to make care central, to place care at the centre of our politics. But, you know, we um, we talk about a notion of universal care, that we all should have some engagement in caring work. You know, we don't get care passes, that we just leave it to someone else, as uh, traditionally men did, and particularly white men did, as Laurie says, that um, uh, uh, some people are exempted from um, doing caring work. And so, you know, to revalue care is to see that we all are engaged in care in different ways. And care, of course, is a very broad concept, which you did mention, Eleanor, that I think there is so much more to say about, because it's not just hands-on care. It's also caring with people and caring about people. That's what Joan Tronto in particular makes those distinctions. So, I mean, I'm finding it quite hard, actually, to engage with things today because I'm caring with and caring about what is happening in Israel-Palestine at the moment. I mean, I can't do any hands-on care there, but it's so devastating to watch and learn about what's happening. And, you know, so we all, actually, unless we close our eyes, as so many people do, and as this, uh, our government at the moment encourages us, to do, you know, there is so much to be concerned about and where we can, particularly, of course, when we're able to in our local communities, we need to be trying to build up those different resources for caring. Again, that's where feminism began, calling for nurseries, more money for youth groups, for, you know, everything that would enable us to actually engage with our community, not feel these isolated depressed individuals that so many people do. But of course, for that, revaluing care means, on the one hand, having the public services that we need, having sort of universal public services, but also having the time to care. So it means shorter working time for everyone as well, so that we can all engage in whatever forms of care and most appropriate, of course, we don't all live in nuclear families that care legislation on the whole was organised around that somehow there'd be a full-time housewife who could take responsibility for all caring works. There are very few full-time housewives who can do that. And where they are, actually, they're now suffering from the old sense of marginalisation and isolation that uh, feminists discovered in those 50s families. So, you know, thinking anew about how we all engage in caring practices, essential, you know, for looking after each other and those we love, but also for maintaining our communities. And no doubt at some point we'll get on to caring for the world, which is in great need of um, sustaining. So, you know, rethinking care is at the heart, I think, of what we have to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I 
realized in part through the work of a reframing of care by Kim Talbear, who's uh, an amazing indigenous scholar and activist here in Canada right now. And she was talking about the, I think it was the organizing work that the water defenders were doing. And it really made me think about how, oh yeah, like all social justice organizing is care work because it's all about making sure that communities and people and the land and the air and water is sustained and is in a being supported to survive and thrive right so like that's what social justice organizing is and it also makes me think about how my care collective like i started my care collective with my closest friends when i still lived in richmond virginia and was really struggling to survive based on the poor amount of care that the government was actually providing, right? Like they wanted to give me, this was in like 1999, but they wanted to give me like, you know, $6 an hour to pay someone to do care for me and only got six hours a day. So that would be $36 a day for someone to do all of my care shifts or whatever. And not only was that just like impossible to find someone who could actually do that, like it would, like you were saying, Lynn, like the institutional care just wrecks bodies because it sets people up to have to push their bodies past their capacities rather than acknowledging their needs and being able to enact care in a way that's caring for everyone involved. So that was part of the reason why we started my care collective was because I just wasn't able to get my needs met. But also I wasn't able to get my needs met because the like agency care folks were often really homophobic and really disabledist. And so me and my friends were like, okay, what do you do when, you know, the government is not actually supporting you? You organize and you create alternatives. And because we were very immersed within sort of radical queer organizing at the time. And so we created My Care Collective, um, co-created it. And then from there, I just have it's been this like, you know, it's definitely hard and stressful to always make sure that I've got enough people, you know, who are involved in the care collective in order to make sure that it's sustainable, that nobody's doing more than works for them and their life and their capacities. And so that's like a huge stress. Like I'm always, always recruiting and always trying to find more people just to make sure that it is sustainable. And also it ties into what you were saying about how, you know, a way that capitalism sort of forces us into these isolated nuclear family units is by making people have to like work all the time Mm -hmm. so that they can pay their rent and have enough money to eat and sustain their individual selves right and so it's certainly like living in toronto or living in london where the cost of living is so high right it makes it so that people don't have as much time to engage in the kinds of care that we need to be able to engage with. And I think that's strategic. I don't think that's an accidental uh, coincidence that people are made to work so that it's like they just have no time to engage with their community, engage with the land. (laughs) It's profitable, I think, is the word. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I think... You're absolutely right to 
that we have to engage in mutual care with each other, caring for each other, particularly in today's world, but but also, you know, never give up on arguing for those, you know, robustly funded public programs because otherwise there'll be so many people like... We know there are a million people in Britain, you know, older people, elderly people, you know, who aren't having their basic... uh, care needs met. But I was interested in one thing you said about Indigenous people caring for the world, because in terms of fighting climate change and environmental destruction, they've been so crucial. I mean, that's beginning to be recognised at some of the climate talks. But meanwhile, they've paid such an enormous price because thousands of them have been murdered and are still being murdered. Really, they have been targeted for just trying to protect their own livelihoods and their own environment and saying, well, you could learn from us if you want to know how to care for the world rather than as we do in Britain, which is um, um, pour our waste and pollute our rivers everywhere so that they're barely safe to swim in, let alone drink from. Yeah, absolutely. That really makes me think about sort of where, you know, like, Indigenous communities bear the disproportionate brunt of climate change, right? And environmental racism and the polluting of water and all of those things, right? Um, and so that's part where, of course, that's where the the activism needs to come from, right? It needs to come from directly impacted communities. And I think that's one of the really important things about like a a disability justice model or a radical model of engaging with disability. Like, so disability justice is like a term that emerges mostly from, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color who are queer and disabled on, on the West Coast, people like Patty Byrne and Leroy Moore, organizers of an amazing group called Sins Invalid, but also Radical Disability, which emerges from A.J. Withers in their text, Disability Politics and Theory. And both of those sort of frameworks really emphasize that we need leadership from directly impacted communities and that that needs to come from, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, communities because those are the communities that bear that brunt of the all of the inequity and all of the systemic violence yeah i think that's so true i mean it's just like in the cities it's been black lives matter that's been so crucial and not just trying to defend black lives but which are always under attack in so many places not only in the usa but to talk about reforming or indeed abolishing the prison system because why do so many black people overwhelmingly end up in prison? Because again, from birth they're just not having adequate resources to um, be cared for adequately and, you know, that's how they end up. The whole expansion of the prison system shows this basic lack of care in society. We'd rather, you know, imprison people with all the costs of that than than care for them from um, the time that people are born. Yeah, and that dates back to very old practices of disposing and excluding and sort of just like taking people that we don't care for or that are marked as undesirable in some way and putting them away in, you know, prisons, in institutions, in, you know, nursing homes and you know this like age-old sort of practice what we did to the disabled in the past (laughs) yeah yeah and and poor people and people of color it's always been this sort of practice right and that's partly why we need a disability justice movement that really centers an intersectional analysis that sort of is seeing the ways that you know, we can't just work towards, you know, you were talking about the limits of independent living movements and that sort of thing. Well, it's really important to kind of think about the ways that disability movements in the past have said, 
okay, disabled people need to be able to live in their homes and they need to be able to live in the community, which is absolutely true. But also, we don't just need to get people out of nursing homes. We also need to get people out of prisons. We need to get people out of all of the carceral institutions that engage in that sort of disposable, disposing behavior, right? That's about locking people away or like removing them from community. So I'm curious as to how we start threading this needle and sort of building a maybe a I can term it an abolitionist care practice because often very understandably and often very urgently, right? Because the state is in control of the cash flow and a lot of, you know, infrastructural and organizational resources. Uh, our demands for care are demands made of the state. But the state is also organized such that often frameworks of welfare or the experiences of welfare are bound up with intense social discipline, intense violence, for instance, you know, um, in school systems, in hospitals, and in kind of prison pipeline forms of what would otherwise or what should otherwise be forms of like social care. So how do we start kind of articulating a series of, of demands and also a series of, of, of practices that we can do amongst ourselves? I'd be interested in saying something about the education system because it's so interesting what's happening now with the attack on the humanities and all the talk of cancel culture and so on. Because what it's about, I think, relates very much to preventing us from thinking about and talking about what really matters to us all. And what really matters to us all is being able to care for each other and the world we live in. But those subjects are going to see, be seen as um, part of the humanities and not so important, whether it's psychology, sociology or whatever. And, you know, we have to always be preparing ourselves for some future job, for the market, for business. And, uh, uh, and of course, everything we're arguing is the opposite. You know, we begin from thinking about human frailty, interconnection, um, how we're able to build a better, caring world for everybody. And, you know, that ties up with precisely what they don't want children to be thinking <laughs> or talking about. And that's part of what the attack in education is today. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wondering as to how we kind of start threading the needle of what I'm going to term probably very uh, imprecisely maybe as a sort of an abolitionist care practice. Because, you know, uh, for many good reasons, right, because the state has resources and it has a lot of control over the flow of those resources and it has a lot of control over infrastructure, right? Our care demands are articulated as like specific demands from the state. But we also know that the state is a vehicle of sometimes very intense social discipline, intense violence, precisely at the places or in the institutions where care is supposed to be being provided. And also those forms of violence are framed to us sometimes as care in themselves, right? Sometimes prisons are sold to us as these are things that are broadly speaking caring. They are things that make us, and that us is in massive big scare quotes, safe, right? So how do we start in our in our demands and also in our practices that we can kind of start doing together something that, that helps us balance off these two things that can feel competing at, at least? Laurie, maybe you should start with you. Yeah, I think that, like, in part, I think we can learn from marginalized communities organizing, you know, throughout all time. But mostly I look at, like, examples where queer communities have come together to care for one another when the the state is is either failing, like, through neglect or when the systems that are, you know, being marketed as caring institutions, right? Like, I think of like, I think it's really interesting that 
foster care is often referred to as, you know, being in care when many people who have navigated those systems have talked about the ways it's anything but actually caring. It's it's more about control. And we see like long histories of the ways that like care is also about control, which is why I think it's important to sort of link care with like abolition because abolition is about more than just getting you know rid of prisons and that kind of thing it's actually about building a world free of you know cages a world that is less oriented around control punishment and surveillance than a world that is about connection care and love, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so we can look to like, you know, early HIV AIDS organizing and how it was this multi-pronged effort, right? Like there were people that were, you know, making sure that folks were not being left alone and not having their direct care needs met, but there was also people agitating the, you know, in the streets to make sure that the government was going to take accountability. And I think we can see that sort of that, that we need that double ended sort of approach when it comes to care, because it's, it's not about necessarily wanting to live independently, but wanting to live in community as part of community, that's one of the things I love that I have really learned through collective care and something that I think collective care has the potential to do is that, you know, I have lots of disabled folks in my care collective. And I think we have this idea about disabled folks that they never are the people who are, you know, caring for Mm. others um but that's just like a statistically not true and b it's kind of reinforcing this binary conception of care rather than one that's about a flow or a connective exchange and so i think it's also connected to evolution because you know we know that we can't just tear things down. We also need to build alternatives and alternatives that actually prioritize the well-being of the earth, of people, of everyone. One thing I would say in response to your question, Eleanor, is that one could try to begin from what some feminists once said, the personal is political, Mm. not meaning that everything we do is important. No, meaning that power can always be present in personal life. So that will be an issue we'll always have to think about, along with thinking about all care as a relationship between the provider and the person being provided for. But even that is slightly misleading because not only do we throughout our lives have needs to be cared for in different ways at different times, but we also need to care. I mean, it's why people get pets and things like that. You know, if really we are these isolated individuals not responsible for anyone else or caring about anyone else, you know, then we will be the sad and depressed people that we know uh, are so widely present in society. So... No, to make a caring relation a good relation, we need resources and we need to see it as a, as a mutual thing, even though it might at times be the case where the person cared for seems not to be able to give much back to the carer. That will never be completely true, actually. You know, just the smile, the laugh, the, you know, there's always something that is can be given back to the carer so long as the provision allows it. You know, there are many people who've been caring for, you know, terribly ill, even, you know, um, uh, mentally and physically damaged people who are devastated when the person they're caring for is no longer with them to be cared for because, you know, we want to care, we need to care. And, and, and as, you know, I argue and others do that, We need to see care as an ingredient 
of all our relationships, even while knowing that, of course, one has to be careful and realise that power can always enter into relationships, particularly if we have the market or institutions or just even within the family, power structures that are being supported in unspoken ways that have to be pulled out and made visible so that it genuinely is a relationship that is as mutual and interactive and caring, mutually caring as possible. I think that what's important yeah, is to acknowledge that power is always present, right? Like it doesn't ever go away and that we need to learn and practice. That's part of what I love about my my care collective is that it gives us an opportunity to practice engaging in care that is acknowledging operations of power, that is working on building a robust, you know, consent practice as well, and that it moves care away from sort of the dehumanization because I think that's what power often does is it or it's how it's often employed is to dehumanize one part of the binary right and so I think that when one of the really powerful things about like abolition work that is building these alternatives is that it gives us an opportunity to practice and to, to like figure out the the problems and the 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 issues right and so we're building that muscle we're building that practice in a in a way that is doing something different right and also something you said Lynn really made me think about how, you know, when we're, you know, I do think that we need to be always holding, like, the government, right, the state, is actually supposed to be caring, right? Like, in a way that, like, that's, like, its job, right, is to 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 care for its the people, right? But so often it doesn't engage in care, it engages in control. And so when we're agitating for like the government to like, you know, prioritize care, prioritize education over things like policing and prioritize the land and caring for the land over corporate profit, like when we're agitating for that, we got to remember to make sure that we're doing it in a way that's mindful of the operation of power because, you know, there's a government program in Toronto or in Canada that allows for people who need care folks to hire their own people and pay them a wage that comes from the government. But then the individual, they call them like, so what do they call them? I forget because I ignore all of the weird government stuff. But um, <laughs> understandably, but they recently submitted a, a weekly newsletter for oh, they're self managers. That's what they call the the people who are directing the care. And they had a whole thing about pets, and they brought it in like it was going to be this like nice thing about how pets are an important part of people's lives but they used it as an opportunity so they were like oh you can get pets in these places and pets are great and then they were like remember that you are not allowed to play or pet or walk a pet on the government dime and so i'm just like it's such a practical example of how the government is like, okay, but don't actually engage in care. Like, you know, don't like pet a cat that's at the house that you're a part of because you're not supposed to be engaging in care. You're supposed to be completing tasks, right? And I just think that's such an important shift that we have to like really emphasize the relationship building and the connection over like this capitalist idea of like efficiency and meeting tasks, right? Like 
you're there to make sure somebody's fed, but you're not there to like, you know, talk to them while you're cutting onions, right? Right. (laughs) It's just so bizarrely like tailorist, like factory laden thinking about, you know, the the thing that we are engaged in here is something that can be broken down into a series of like discrete moments about like whether or not you are like nice to a very specific cat in a very specific person's house at a very specific like 31 past the hour and really you should have left your other shift four minutes ago. It's like, and the messiness, uh, and I mean this in a positive way, of relational thinking really makes that sort of form of tailorism really like kind of hard to apply but i'm i'm guess i'm wondering if there's uh anything we should be cautious about when we think about building care practices that are founded on relationships and sort of that the, in its full sense that you know and its full kind of embracing and positive sense because there have been criticisms of the experience of the kind of negative parts of the experience of you know caring relationships that have come out of like certain branches of feminist thought and I'm wondering how we wrangle with those complexities we often see in the kind of Betty Friedan or sort of you know the archetypes of the 1950s housewife who needs to be you know literally tranquilized in order to get through the day and that's I'm sure not what any of us are thinking about when we think about a care relationship but I'm just kind of wondering of uh, you know how we respond to these worries well I think that beginning with thinking about mothering which is the sort of first thing everyone thinks about when they think about care and recognizing how difficult mothers are finding it today that begins to tell us something about how challenging it is to unpack that caring relationship because we no caring relationship can really work well without support from somewhere, without support from other people, the resources that are needed for good caring, and also knowing what your what the outcome of your caring will be. So with mothering today, the first thing everyone complains about is not having the time and resources for adequate caring because so many women are out at work. On the other hand, where you do get full-time mothering today, you still get huge anxiety because these full-time mothers once more feel alone in trying to create these perfect children for an ultra-competitive world. And so we can't unpack caring outside of creating a more mutually caring world. Without that mutually caring world, then no caring relations can on their own, you know, be as healthy as they might be. And that is so crystal clear with mothering when they like to say, you know, it takes a city to raise a child or something. Well, it does, but it it takes a certain sort of city to raise a child. It, It takes knowing that we are caring for people who then can go out into a more caring world. And so, you know, our caring relation has to be placed into a wider community and a wider economic structure. You know, we can't just begin in one place. We can't simply reform, say, um, how mothers can care for their children without also creating the world around as a more, you know, creating the communities and the wider world as also a more caring place. So I guess that's why people like me have been trying to broaden what we mean by care you know, caring for people in a caring world. And, you know, and that does mean caring for everyone in that world because, you know, you only have to look at what happened with the pandemic and even with the vaccination program that, you know, we vaccinate the first world but are very um, slow to enable vaccinations in the rest of the world. So, therefore, COVID continues and different COVID strains develop. So, you know, arguing for why care is this complex and, you know, ever-expanding notion with certainly its own contradictions, but something which really needs to be placed, I think, at the heart of all of our politics, whatever sorts of politics we're engaged in, whether it's disability politics or peace politics or um, environmental politics, care will be 
a crucial aspect of that. But this expanded notion of care, which isn't just how do we best do hands-on care, because the way we best do hands-on care is knowing our place in that wider world and feeling supported, feeling both supported as carers and then that the person we're caring for also can get the support they need to engage in the wide the wider world, which is, of course, what Laurie has been talking about. So there's so much to talk about as we unpack what it means to place care at the heart of our politics. Laurie? Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Like, it's, we talk about abolition, and part of what abolition is tied to is transformative justice, and it's about transforming the systems of oppression that are recreating and keeping these like systems of inequality in play, right? And it's like, it's hard to imagine a caring world without radically transforming like capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy, mm-hmm. because all of those systems are are not caring, right? They're about control and carcerality and punishment, right? Um, And disabilism and the ways that they all interweave and rely on each other to, you know, enact harm and violence. So yeah, we really need to work on transforming those systems and like building these alternatives that help us to practice, but also to imagine that world, that caring world. Like there were so many times during the pandemic where I was so profoundly grateful for the fact that like the way that I, you know, have my particular care needs met was through a community of people that I love and care about because they were the only people I was seeing, right? Like was the folks who were helping me get out of bed and go to the washroom. And, you know, it was nice. I got to like spend time with them, you know, and, and connect with them. And for a lot of them, they were like, Oh my God, I'm so glad that, I'm here because like you're literally the only person I'm seeing right now. And so it was this like moment where if I was somebody who was only accessing institutional care models, then I would have been completely isolated and it would have just made an already stressful, hard, scary time even even worse and so I think that one of the things we always need to keep in mind too is that like a lot of marginalized people are profoundly isolated and so don't have access to community in the ways that you need to be able to access community in order to have a care collective, for example. And so that's, you know, one of the reasons why I think it is really important to always be mindful of who is excluded from community and who who is not present and how do we build those relationships and extend caring networks into places where people are really isolated. So both of you have been thinking and writing and researching deeply about care for many years now. And we've just been through, I mean, we're still going through a, a, like a global health crisis that has certainly exposed many more people to the idea of their own vulnerability. And it's also meant that many more people are finding themselves suddenly disabled. Has that changed, you think, the way in which we think about this kind of mutual dependence, the way in which we think about care in general? Lynn? Depends who the we is, doesn't it? It um, (laughs) certainly doesn't seem to have uh, changed the Tory government in power in um, Britain which has done almost nothing to prioritise care, just talks about it, but it won't even uh, improve the wages of our health workers or get rid of the zero-hours contracts that mean uh, that carers can't do the work that they're employed to do as they race from one place to another. Now, we certainly need 
a carer's charter, it seems to me, a carer's charter that is thinking about both carers and the person being cared for. And we've been promised it for a while, but we've certainly never got it. So thinking about a carer's charter, which some of our unions like Unison in Britain does try and talk about that. You know, what would a good care system look like? And so it has to be one where the carer is not exploited and where the person being cared for has their needs met, but where that relationship is in itself valued. You know, and and all of us are engaged in thinking about that. But I can't say that I've seen a big change, except I do see what happened first when COVID started invading people's bodies was that... um, there were mutual aid groups formed, a lot of them globally, you know, doing very good work. And I think that there is a residue of that. I see it today in my local area in North London, of course, sadly, first of all, in the food banks, because people haven't even got enough food to eat, but also in um, some of the um, there's a space in one of our local churches called the Second Chance Cafe, where people can eat together and they either pay if they can or they don't pay at all. There there are there are lots of residue of mutual aid which is important to think of as we go forward in um, trying to get a new charter for carers and for those cared for. But I only I only see it resonating with some people. Unfortunately, exactly the people we want to see interested in reforming our caring practices and caring policies on the whole are showing very little sign of doing that. So I don't see a fundamental change, sadly. We still have to keep fighting for that. So, Laurie, how do we start that? <laughs> Joining the dots between the fact that, like, listen, we've... we've seen in in very stark terms our mutual dependence even on just a virological level right so how do we start kind of like forcing change that actually reflects the lessons that many many of us have had to learn in many tragic ways or certainly in many stark ways in recent times yeah i mean i think part of it is about connecting with disability justice organizing and community like there are a lot of people now that are experiencing disability or chronic illness in ways that they never have before and I think that part of it is we need to give people a framework for understanding their experiences that is different than the dominant models of disability right like so that people feel connected to and supported by disability experiences and also can politicize their experiences that they're having. And so I think that's one important thing is sort of promoting, for lack of a better word, like the the important flip of understanding disability from a disability justice framework and yeah, like there's a thing that's happening right now that I think is really interesting and I haven't totally worked it through, but I think it's really interesting how we're in a cultural moment right now where bodily autonomy, including like trans people's rights to live their lives free of violence and harm and access supports that they need to be able to live their lives the way they want to. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like reproductive justice work, right? Right now is all under attack. But at the same time, you know, on television, we're seeing like, you know, more diverse representation than ever before. And I think that there's something in that sort of contradiction that's happening, like where like policies and laws and, you know, sort of those material practices are not reflecting the world that television is telling us that we're living in, right? Mm -hmm. Like television's like, oh, we're living in this like wonderful, diverse world where people have agency and autonomy. And we feel like it's connected to 
part of what Lynn was saying about how, like, you know, like the Tory government, like there's all these people that are trying to deny so venomously <laughs> right, their interdependence in the world, like their inherent interdependence, their vulnerability, the messiness, like they're just like, get rid of the messiness. Like the, I want a, an easily controllable, easily organizable world. When COVID, the first couple of waves were happening and there was all the protests around mask wearing. And it was like, I was like, people are basically screaming, I'm not interdependent. And it's like, but you are. Like, no matter mm. how much you scream that you're not interdependent and argue that you shouldn't have to wear a mask, it it doesn't change the fact that you are breathing the same air as everyone around you. Like, that is interdependence, right? And so I think there's something in all of that that I'm still trying to, like, work through. Like, the the desire for like easy solutions to hard, complicated problems. Right. And that neoliberal solutions, right? Like, so we're like, okay, if we have enough trans actors and characters on television, then we don't necessarily have to, you know, support trans people being able to access healthcare uh, that is important for them. There is, I'm afraid, where we will have to leave this very expansive topic. I'm sure we could do six podcasts on it, 600 podcasts on it. But in the meanwhile, Laurie, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful and a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thanks for tuning into our episode. We were joined by Lynn Segal and Laurie Erickson to talk about disability rights activism and radical dependency. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or a review. It really helps us out. It helps people find us through the infinite wisdom of the algorithm. That was the last episode of this season, but we'll be back with you in the new year with more authors, activists, academics, and beyond. And in the meanwhile, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, however you're holidaying, and see you in 2024. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.